Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. Produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies, this podcast is your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering Social Inflation. A new paper from NAMIC and the DRI takes a closer look at ways insurers can combat legal system abuse and a major step forward towards tort reform in Florida. How a new bill checks the box for insurers hoping to stem abusive litigation efforts. In the Sunshine State, the legislative session formally kicked off this week with a wide-ranging tort reform bill aimed at protecting businesses and insurers from frivolous lawsuits in Florida. Twin bills in the House and Senate in part seek to eliminate one-way attorney fees, reduce the statute of limitations for filing negligence lawsuits, and revamp laws about comparative negligence. The American Tort Reform Foundation currently ranks Florida as what it calls one of the worst judicial hellholes in the U.S. for allegedly abusive litigation. And similarly, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform has rated Florida's liability system one of the least fair in the nation. NAMIC applauds the effort to end litigation abuse and protect Floridian consumers. During the 60-day legislative session ahead, the association will work with legislators as changes to the bills occur and final votes are taken in the final days leading to scheduled adjournment on May 5th. Meanwhile, in Illinois, a bill that would ban 15 different rating factors and allow the State Department of Insurance to control and dictate rates will stay in subcommittee. House Bill 2203, dubiously known as the Motor Vehicle Insurance Fairness Act, has not received a hearing yet and remains in the House Insurance Subcommittee. At the same time, House Bill 1059, to ban the use of credit on auto insurance will also remain in the insurance subcommittee. The property casualty insurance industry continues to work collaboratively as NAMIC, the APCIA, and the Independent Insurance Agents of Illinois work alongside other stakeholders, including the Illinois Manufacturers Association and the Illinois Chamber of Commerce, to execute a broad strategy designed to stop the bill. The deadline for all bills to be voted out of committee in the House is March 10th. As the market continues to grapple with this new era of inflation, NAMIC is collaborating with Jen Rhee on a three-part series to examine what insurers can do to minimize its impact. Part one of the series focuses on the history of inflationary periods in the United States, while part two takes a deep dive into what's driving inflationary pressures on various sectors of the market. Jen Rhee Senior Vice President Ridge Muley says this is an important topic to cover because of how deeply it affects all areas of business. To review the Genry series, head to namic.org and click on External Thought Leadership.
Well, there's another type of inflation felt by insurers, and that's the trend of social inflation. Social inflation refers to the impact of rising litigation costs on insurers' claim payouts, loss ratios, and ultimately how much policyholders pay for coverage. NAMIC recently partnered with the DRI on a policy paper about social inflation, which is a topic NAMIC members have been following for quite a while. On today's Unscripted, I'm joined by Chris Turney, who serves as chair of the DRI Litigation Skills Committee. The paper adds a new dimension to this discussion by taking a closer look at how insurers can combat legal system abuse. We look forward to talking to you more about that today, Chris, so thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I'm, uh, thank you so much for uh, hosting me here today. Terrific. Well, I know social inflation is your area of expertise, but before we get into that, um, I think most of our, our members are familiar with DRI, but just for those who might not be, can you tell us a little bit about the organization? Well, absolutely. Yes, DRI is comprised largely of uh, defense attorneys across the country, and uh, it's you know the tagline is we're lawyers representing business. And, you know, business, of course, is insurance companies, but also insureds. Um, it's primarily litigation attorneys and trial lawyers uh, who are looking to protect these folks who have sacrificed their lives and, uh, you know, their, their finances to go start businesses and create our economy. Uh, that's such a strong economy here in this world market. And um, that's something I'm very passionate about, uh, being a tool of sorts for these entrepreneurs to not only manage risk, but also to combat litigation um, and to help resolve claims favorably and uh, fairly. Great. So, you know, that's that's obviously what this paper is all about. And as insurers, we know there are always going to be claim disputes or questions about liability that cannot get resolved without going to court. And that's partly why we have a civil court system. The problem though, is when people try to turn what's supposed to be a fair system for resolving good faith disputes into for-profit business. Um, there's a quote in the paper that I found particularly compelling that says, social inflation is a dynamic phenomenon that is growing in volatility, scope, and public interest. So Chris, can you tell our listeners just how big a problem is this? Well, I'm not entirely sure that we know, and I hate to give an evasive answer, um, but it, it is very dynamic. And just as every industry is blessed with very solid practitioners who do very good work, um, you know, the legal field's no different, and there are possibly some outliers. There are some folks who um, possibly want to push the rules as much as possible for profit, um, and sometimes even cross that line. Um, the, the scope of social inflation is obviously going to be difficult because of all the external forces. Um, and in the paper, you might notice there's kind of a cloud diagram, I think in pictures, and the uh, original chair of the task force um, got a kick out of my drawing about the factors that go into social inflation. And when I drew that, I never actually thought it would be a part of a publication, but it made it. <laughs> um, but there's there's three factors that we've determined go into uh, the, the social inflation that we see. And with social inflation, just a loose definition of it is um, unreasonable settlement positions that are taken uh, by plaintiffs in litigation. And that word unreasonable is certainly loaded. It's I'm sure in their minds, they're not unreasonable at all. 
Um, but there is an increasing trend of getting larger demands than we've ever had before for the same types of injuries. Um, but we view it as about three factors. There are in-courtroom tactics that are happening that are driving evaluation of cases. There's extrajudicial conduct, uh, mainly lo looking at third-party litigation funding and looking at attorney advertising that impact that. But then also just a variety of social issues. Um, when we watch the news, um, there's a lot of you know, dramatic response that's happening in our day-to-day -day lives that our jurors are being bombarded with. And all of these things kind of work together, like we said, in a dynamic way. And um, I think there are things that can be done on all of those factors uh, to try and reduce the risk of some of this inflation that we're seeing on the litigation side. So um, what Based on your experience, what do you think insurers need to be most concerned about with regard to some of these tactics, for example? Well, and one thing that we see a lot of times is um, the investment that is going into these cases. And I'm not, not just talking about third-party litigation funding, which is certainly a hot topic uh, these days, but the investment that attorneys are making and the investment that the parties are making and seeing different tactics that are being implemented um, to actually kind of seems like drive up the cost of some of the litigation. Um, and for example, I know in, in my area, we're starting to see more and more um, lean-based medical providers. And so these are doctors who are doing surgeries on a lean. And so they will not build the traditional health insurance companies where, of course, their fees will be written down. And at trial, we would get to, as defendants, present the actual paid number of medical bills as opposed to the actual billed number, which, as we all know, <laughs> we've been in this field for very long. There's a multiplier effect between the amount billed and the amount paid. But what we're seeing is a lot of these um, plaintiffs are now going to doctors who will treat based on liens. And so they charge fairly high rates, in my experience. And that leaves the defendants without a number of the amount paid. And what happens is these providers will actually provide treatment um, in exchange for a cut. <laughs> you know, they'll be paid out of the settlement dollars. And it's um, technically a recourse loan, so that separates it a little bit from what we see, I think, in third-party litigation funding. But we still see this as a bit of a um, an extension of the third-party litigation funding when these doctors now have some interest in the outcome of the case. And that's just one very specific example that we're starting to see on the defense side in some of these cases. Um, but as far as how we approach that and what insurance companies might want to think about and how to approach these problems, which I view as our job, um, we can talk all we want to about the problem, but unless we start throwing out solutions, we maybe are not advancing the ball. And so my theory comes down to a couple of premises. If we have the first premise that most investors are rational people and they're simply looking for a return on their investment, then now whether we're talking about third-party litigation funding or these doctors who are treating based on lean, it seems like the most logical response from an economic standpoint will be to reduce their return. Don't buy into their system. Do not play by their rules. Don't pay in settlements what they're wanting just because the plaintiff will be left with nothing if you don't pay enough in settlement. And they're hijacking mediations 
largely uh, based on those those lien amounts. Um, and so that's an easy answer. <laughs> Just don't settle. Don't pay. Let's try more cases. Let's win more cases. And of course, that's an easy answer. But how do we do that? And that's where from the defense side and as chair of the DRI litigation skills committee, that's one thing that we're really wanting to address with defense counsel across the country is how can we combat these things so that we don't feel like we're backed into a corner on settlements? Talk a little bit about plaintiff attorney advertising and how that's, uh, you know, starting to uh, cross the line in some instances and then what how that translates into the impact on the insurance community. So the, the attorney advertising is obviously a nuanced and tricky area. Uh, we're dealing with freedom of speech, uh, which is very important in our country. It's constitutional, but we're also dealing with the extent of public harm. And we've all, you know, we've certainly seen some courts getting involved, uh, some legislatures getting involved in curbing some of the litigation. Um, just months ago, Kansas passed a legislative bill that uh, basically curtails some of the medical advertising that lawyers can do. And I believe that what was being noticed was that people were starting to make their own health decisions based on commercials they see on TV. You know, this particular medication causes this particular harm. And all of a sudden you have people making decisions without their doctor's uh, involvement based on commercials they've seen. Um, the concern that we also have from attorney advertising from the trial lawyer standpoint is incomplete information that's being given to our jury pool. And one great thing about our country is that our jurors are everyday people and we have a jury of our peers. It's a constitutional protection and it's a wonderful protection to have. But our jurors, our jury pool is being hit with advertisements. And some of these advertisements from the attorneys that I've seen, they kind of skip the legal standard. Um, have you been hurt on the job? You know, then therefore you're entitled to compensation. And it pr presents this picture um, that a person is entitled to recover just because they've gotten hurt. Uh, we've also seen some of the more specific commercials, uh, mainly with some toxic torts, that um, it skips a causation standard. You know, asbestos causes cancer. And a very simple statement like that, it leaves out, well, how much asbestos can cause cancer? Is there certain types of asbestos that can cause cancer? What's the dose that's required? Um, there's a lot of factors, of course, that result in three-week-long trials with multiple experts involved that obviously you cannot put into a 15 to 30 sec second uh, attorney advertisement. And so a part of the attorney advertising problem in, in our mind as the Social Inflation Committee with DRI comes down to what, what is being communicated to our jury pool. And that's a part of the, the problem that we're starting to see. Um, and there's situations like that that can be handled to some degree in jury selection and kind of calling out some of the missing information that's involved. You, uh, the paper talks, uh, uh, spends a great deal of time on plaintiff's trial techniques and some of the things that the plaintiff's trial does. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those? And um, I think one of the terms that they talk about is something called anchoring and how that kind of plays out. And then what insurers can do to be better prepared to handle those situations or to, to be on the lookout and what they can do to, you know, better prepare themselves. Uh, that's an absolutely uh, important issue, and it's not a new one. 
Uh, there was a case in Missouri in the 1950s where the plaintiff's lawyer was uh, arguing to the jury that Sandy Koufax, as a pitcher, was making so much money, and therefore this plaintiff could be entitled to more than that because the plaintiff contributes more to society than Sandy Koufax did. Um, so this isn't a new psychological tool. And in fact, we've all you know, negotiated for cars, you know, that the dealership's using anchoring tactics where they mark up the price of the car and then you feel like you're winning when you leave. And the way that that manifests in the courtroom is that the, the, the plaintiff attorney will ask for a tremendous amount of money, even in voir dire, even in jury selection. And I should say jury selection. I went to law school in Texas where we called it voir dire, but everyone else, I think, calls it voir dire. I don't know. So we'll call it jury selection. <laughs> I had to look it up regardless. So, <laughs> OK, fair enough. But during the jury selection, the plaintiffs will start to throw out very large numbers. And it's in the context of who in this courtroom has already made up your mind that you cannot award $10 million for this plaintiff. And the more times that that $10 million number is argued or thrown out to the jury, the more comfortable they become with it. And the very talented plaintiff lawyers, and I'll full disclosure, I'm friends with almost every plaintiff's lawyer I've been against. And so I don't mean to demean them. They do a great job for their clients, and I have a tremendous respect for them in doing it. But one thing that they do throughout the trial is throw out these large numbers to desensitize the jurors to those numbers. Well, and what happens at the end of the trial when Sure, the jury doesn't award $10.9 million, which is what the plaintiff was asking for, but we're just going to cut it in half and we're going to let the defendants win this one and we'll only award $5 million. Well, if it's only an $800,000 case, then we've still lost. And so that's the problem with anchoring is that even when the jury thinks they're letting the defendants win by awarding fewer dollars, it's still an inflated verdict. So that's the problem with anchoring. And the so, second so question anchoring is is essentially putting that thought in their head and it sticks in their brain, so to speak, anchors in their mind. It anchors in their mind. If you can picture an anchor of a boat catching on a big rock underneath the sea, it holds that ship within a range, right? Mm -hmm. The ship can only move within the length of that chain. And by setting an anchor at a very high number, the plaintiff's lawyers do a very good job of trying to ensure that the verdict is at least higher than X. You know, if we're ex if we're asking for 2x or 3x, then we'll probably at least get x. And so your important question, though, now that we've identified the problem, the important question is what can insurers do? And this is probably going to sound self-serving, and I totally embrace and accept that. But <laughs> if we look at the team that the insurers have, you know, of course, the insurance company is a part of the team for our companies that are out manufacturing products. One of the, the things that I preach to all my friends and family is insurance companies help commerce in this United States. How many products would never be taken to market if it weren't for insurance companies that are providing a catastrophic safety net in case we get something wrong? You know, insurance is a very strong part of a corporate team, as are defense lawyers. And as I'm representing companies who are getting sued, it's my job to foresee these tactics that the plaintiffs are going to use and to combat them. Now, the problem that we run into is the more I do, the more it costs the insurance companies on the defense side in terms of legal spend and expense. And so there's always this balancing act between the trial lawyer and the insurance company about how much do we do. But back to some premises, there's a couple of truths from a trial lawyer's perspective. 
in order to have authentic confidence, I have to be prepared. I have to have the knowledge of the case. Um, to get knowledge, it requires tenacity and creativity. It requires us to ask the right questions of the right witnesses in the right way to know the right documents. It requires us to know how our corporate representatives are going to respond to cross-examination at trial. It requires us to prepare our corporate representatives for what's coming in their deposition, because once they say it in the deposition, we're kind of stuck with it. So there's a lot of investment that goes into crafting a defense to be accurate, to be authentic, but also to give the trial lawyer confidence to be able to counter the plaintiff's tactics. Now, with that premise, specifically with regard to anchoring, one thing that the trial lawyers are doing a better job of on the defense side is we can either remove the anchor, which is exposing exactly why they're wrong in this anchor number they're putting out there. We can remove the anchor. I mean, well, I said remove the anchor. We can expose it. We can expose the tactic to the jurors. Or we can actually counter anchor. We can set our own anchor as a low number. In order to do any of those three, it takes a lot of preparation. Because if we present too low of a counter anchor in the wrong case, it can have a counter effect with the jury because the jurors get mad at us for saying that this person's life was only worth X. And so in order to do this the right way, it re really requires an investment and a lot of communication among the team, that being the defendant, the trial lawyer, and the insurer. There's a lot of good information on that in the paper. Um, and I would encourage folks to uh, to take a, a good hard look at that. But uh, we only have time for about one more question. And I wanted to get at whether or not you see anything in particular happening at the state or the federal level um, that might help curb some of these activities by the, the plaintiff's attorneys. And also, um, what about the court system itself? Are there any things underway or any things uh, like rules of the court or something that that help in this regard? Well, I think, um, like I said, for example, with anchoring, it's not a new phenomenon. And there are some case law in different courts that we need to be a little bit better as a defense bar at finding and communicating. And that's one thing with the litigation skills committee that we're going to be doing is trying to connect the defense lawyers across the country to help share good information from the courts that are ma making good rulings, you know, good motions that are being filed to try and curb some of the tactics. And more importantly, because not, not every judge needs to issue a dictate about how the plaintiff's lawyer can and can't try their case, most importantly is investing in the defense bar to come together and develop the right strategies to counter it. And so from the judicial perspective, I think a lot of it comes down to communi communication among the lawyers across the country. Um, there are certainly some efforts nationwide with regard to attorney advertising, and I mentioned Kansas, I think, in 2022, uh, the summer, you know, enacted a bill about it, it makes um, some of the attorney advertising under the, the uh, it puts it under the prospect of the Kansas Deceptive Trade Practices Act. And so with the medical advertising in Kansas, the lawyers now have to be a little bit more careful about how they say what they're saying. I know West Virginia had a similar uh, case that was affirmed by the uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, in fact. Um, and so there is some legislation that's going out with regard to the attorney advertising. And although some of the trial courts look like they have overturned that legislation on constitutional grounds, 
um, the courts of appeals have upheld a lot of those. And then, of course, attorneys are, I think, doing better to seek disclosure when third parties are involved in the case. And the disclosure is important if we can get the agreements, because the main problem that I think can come out of third party litigation funding is how much control do those folks now have over the settlement? And so if you have some foreign interests, um, and I mean foreign to the litigation, putting money into the litigation, whether it's just to make money or maybe to hurt <laughs> you know, our, our commercial interests in the United States, whatever the reason is behind that, we don't totally know. But regardless, if we know what the agreement is, it helps us to better create the arguments against it. It helps us to better shine light on what it is and perhaps what it isn't. But it can also help us to make those decisions in a little bit more of a clean format to know what it is that we are up against uh, with regard to the valuation of these claims. Well, Chris, there's no doubt a ton more we could talk about on this topic, but we're running out of time. So I'd just like to thank you again for being our guest today. And I would definitely like to give a shout out to DRI for partnering with NAMIC on this critically important topic. It's uh, definitely a must-read for all NAMIC members, and we encourage you to take a look at it online. You can find the paper on our website under the Advocacy tab for Public Policy Papers. Now, before we wrap up this episode of Insurance Uncovered, we want to give a shout-out to our Diamond Level sponsors. A big thank you to Charter Diamond sponsor Jen Ree and Diamond sponsors Aon, Bain Capital, Guy Carpenter, and Exceedance. Your support means the world to us. And that's it for this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. We'll be back again on March 22nd with more insurance news and perspective. Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus, and I hope you have a wonderful day.